Welcome to a new conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. If you're planning for retirement, you're focused on your financial security, but you know there are a host of other issues that you need to be planning for as well. Healthcare, aging in place, caregiving, and a host of other issues. And the good news is there's a lot of work going on with the future of aging that will provide some interesting, innovative tools and resources that you can tap into. Today, we'll be talking with an investor in that space, all those spaces, who can give us an idea of what's happening and what might be coming down the pike. My guest is Abby Miller-Levy. She's the managing partner and co-founder of Primetime Partners, an early-stage venture capital fund that invests in and builds from the ground up companies that can transform the quality of living for older adults. Abby has spent her career helping businesses and consumer brands grow as an operator, entrepreneur, and advisor, most notably in the wellness sector. Prior to Primetime Partners, Abby was an executive at SoulCycle, where she oversaw business development and revenue growth outside the consumer studio business, with an emphasis on building new digital products as the Senior Vice President of Strategy and Growth. Abby has also been a founder herself, teaming with Ariana Huffington to launch Thrive Global, a behavior change technology company focused on employee productivity and wellness. Abby served as president of Thrive Global and remains on the Thrive board. She began her career at McKinsey and then led product development at OXO International. She's a graduate of Princeton University and Harvard Business School. Abby, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to be here, Joe. Thanks for having me. So most people listening are aware that the longevity industry is rapidly growing. Can you give us some sense of the size and scale? Absolutely. So I I think it's important to put in context why the longevity industry, even that term, is a new term. In fact, I don't even think people were talking about a longevity industry a decade ago as an industry, except for maybe Joe Coughlin over at the MIT lab. And the reason why it's become an industry is because the demographic shift that people were forecasting is finally here. This demographic shift of the fact that some people estimate that those born after 2004 in developed nations, 50% of those born after 2004 will live to be 100. And so we're talking about this huge difference, not only in the size of the population, there's going to, in the US alone, in three decades, we will have gone from 40 million Americans over the age of 65 to 80 million, doubling the population of older Americans in just three decades between 2010 and 2040. So it's here. And so that is why I believe that people are talking about this as its own topic of economics and top in that sense. So what does that mean? There are estimates all over the place of the size of the economy. You could put all of healthcare, or in some ways, two-thirds of healthcare in the longevity economy because older Americans consume two-thirds of American healthcare. And so you, you could put all the senior living industry in there. So I'm less focused on the estimates that say it's $2 trillion, it's $22 billion, I mean, whatever that may be. What we're more interested in prime time because we're an early-stage investment fund is the amount of innovation going on in the space. And so just to, to put a, a book in there, Since we launched in summer of 2020, so almost three years, we've looked at 1,300 startups that would be included in the longevity economy. This includes healthcare businesses, financial service businesses, consumer and media businesses. There is a lot of new ideas bubbling up because entrepreneurs have recognized and the entire, all the incumbents of this ecosystem have recognized 
we need to move faster to build the infrastructure we need to serve an older population. So what are some of the trends that you see longevity is driving in healthcare? Such an interesting question. I've never been asked it in that way before. It's usually how is healthcare impacting longevity? And I think it's an interesting way to flip the question. I think some of the things that we're seeing, which was really accelerated by COVID, frankly, is remote care. Our healthcare system in the US doesn't have the bandwidth, the capacity to really manage another 20, 30 years of someone's health because it's we've got this fixed infrastructure and fixed system. And because of COVID, telemedicine was, first of all, became germane, right? I mean, how many of, of you listening use telemedicine to speak with a doctor or a healthcare professional for the first time? I would bet it would be 90%. But it was also became approved as a reimbursable visit through our government. And that is one of the things that Trump did and is continued under this administration is that it is before COVID, only a few exceptions of telemedicine was reimbursed by your health plan. And now almost all of it is. So that change in terms of how longevity is impacting the healthcare system is it's provided a very scalable way for providers and clinicians to reach a population that, yes, would like to age in place, but also needs more healthcare because they're living longer and will have more occasions for healthcare. So I think that's one way that longevity is impacting healthcare. The other way that longevity kind of related to that is the tremendous strain on the system because we don't have enough care professionals. In the olden days, I mean, I'm talking about centuries ago, health was managed in the home. Health was managed by the family, multi-generational living. We now have 50% of Americans over the age of 80 live by themselves. That is a huge, huge challenge from a staffing perspective if you don't, of how you provide services. So that staffing challenge has really led to a lot of creativity from healthcare providers figuring out gig economy healthcare workers, students as healthcare workers, family caregivers. There's 53 million unpaid, untrained family caregivers who care for a loved one. They are now being assessed and, and, and a lot of startups are looking at how do we engage them as healthcare workers. And of course, COVID made everything harder. It constrained the supply of our healthcare staff. So I think another way longevity is impacting health is really around the need to come up with creative solutions for healthcare staffing. And the last one I'll mention, which I find fascinating, is really this emerging field of longevity science. And really what that means is the majority of research historically had been done over the past several decades, scientific research, medical research, on men ages 30 to 50. And so we actually don't have a very prolific body of research on how each of our organs ages with one exception, being our largest organ, the skin. And that is because there is a several trillion dollar beauty and skincare industry that um, from a private sector point of view has developed our understanding how this organ ages. But every other organ, it's all greenfield, Joe. It's, it's just happening that we have the science, the tools that, you know, in terms of the microscopes and all this, and the area where it's become obviously most press and interest is dementia. Because the rate of dementia, every three seconds, someone's diagnosed with dementia. And it is right now an uncurable and very painful and expensive disease. So I think this area of longevity science is going to be impacting our healthcare, literally from our feet, podiatry, to our hair follicles, you know, head to toe. 
And in that space, what do you find most exciting and interesting, most probable? I mean, it's all probable. I mean, that is the reality of it. It's a question of figuring out the economics to make sure that it's supported from a a long-term perspective. I mean, remote care, hospital at home, that's all happening. And I think healthcare providers are trying to figure out how to do that more cost-effectively. And so that ship has sailed. Staffing shortages, I think that is going to be something we're going to see policy changes around to encourage more people to, I mean, we need to find another 4 million healthcare workers in the next decade. I mean, it's just going to have to come from a, a mixture of bottoms up and tops down. And then on the longevity science, I mean, one of the things that America does so well is pharmaceuticals. We were really the world. So I think pharmacology, and that's not something we invest in. We do not invest in businesses that are in biotech, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, but they are very aggressively investing in solutions in this area about each of our organs age. And then there's been this new area that I'm really excited about called digital therapeutics. And digital therapeutics is an area that still needs to be FDA approved, but it's basically using behavioral health and digital interventions as opposed to metabolic or pharmaceutical interventions to postpone, delay, prevent different types of diseases. So I think that there is tremendous investment going into this area. And so that's from both government and private sector. And that's why we'll continue to see see changes. So there are important social factors that influence health and longevity. What are some new solutions that you see coming in that space? So I think there's good news and bad news here. The good news is that behavioral health or preventative care which historically was not really part of our healthcare system. We have much more of a system of treat the sick, not prevent the sickness. And just in terms of a reimbursement and how how the model works, there have now been, because of CMS or reimbursement rates, the ability for health plans to pay for and provide behavioral health solutions. So this is all of these new benefits. If someone looks who's listening, if you actually go look up your plan benefits for your Medicare plan, your Medicare Advantage, MedSup, whatever you're looking for as an older American or as a younger American, you will see you have a menu of behavioral health benefits. This can be fitness, food benefits or nutritional supplements, mental health benefits, transportation benefits to get you to the pharmacy or get you to the doctor. And so I think that there's been an acknowledgement of this term social determinants of health, SDOH, and it's becoming more mainstream. The bad news of this, of really this kind of social pressure on preventative health is still the number one blocker of health is financial insecurity. If you are food insecure, you are not taking your medication, you're getting food. If you're housing insecure, you are not thinking about, hey, how can I move today to make sure my heart is healthy? Because you are exhausted because your your housing is insecure. And so that in my mind is still the biggest social determinant of health is our financial insecurity, really, which is where retirement... And there's a portion of the population that has always lived with insecurity. But one of the most concerning things that we're looking at from an innovation standpoint is the financial insecurity that occurs because longevity is impacting people's bank accounts. And that Americans thought they had enough money saved. I mean, I remember it used to be $1 million was the magic number. Or if you retire this age, then you'll be fine. And you're nodding your head because you know that those actuarial models and financial models are shifting now. 
with longevity. And so when we think about those, what I'm seeing that's exciting, yes, it's great that there's all of these individual benefits around behavioral health. What we really want to see is a much bigger emphasis on retirement savings, on long-term care policies and alternatives to long-term care policies, annuities and different types of, of products and services. And then finally, letting all Americans get financial advice in this scalable way. 50% of Americans don't have a retirement plan. How are you going to have financial security if you don't know what you have is enough or not enough or how to do anything with it? And historically, unless you were in the top 1% of wealth in our country, you didn't really have access to retirement advice. So um, we're, we invest, we've made seven investments in fintech or, or financial service businesses really around this issue of financial insecurity. And what's coming in that space? What will things look like? Five years from now, do you think? Well, I think it's going to take a lot longer than five years, of course. But I think a few things. One is, I think retirement funding is going... You know, If you think about the history of it, it used to be a right that you had with a pension. If you were a work... It was a right that you had because you had social security benefits and you had a pension. So you didn't have to think about it because it was just, I paid my dues. I have this net. I will be covered and protected. As you know, we then went to a different approach, which is individual contributions, defined contributions, 401ks, IRAs, et cetera. So now it is on the shoulders of individuals to plan for and to think about their future. The problem is, is that that actual planning and thinking happens too late right now. It happens in that urgent moment when versus for folks in their 20s and 30s, where it matters in terms of an asset accumulation and compounding perspective. So what do I think is going to happen? I think the government is already putting in regulations like in Washington state where employers of a certain size have to offer retirement plans and make sure their employees have their certain enrollment in it. We're seeing it with the uptick of younger Americans starting to save for their retirement. And so I think that what we're seeing in terms of the innovations that we're investing in are organizations that make it easy for folks to have a 401k, encourage them to invest in it and provide them with the education and motivation to really focus on this this side of it. So that's one area of innovation we're seeing. The second area of innovation is, is I find super interesting is most of our financial services system is geared around asset accumulation. This is mortgages to buy a house, credit cards to afford the, the TV. It's about more. And we don't really have a sophisticated system of asset decumulation, especially compared to other places like Europe where it's pretty normal that you'll use the equity in your home called equity release or home equity financing to as a cash flow mechanism. In America, there's such a stigma around tapping into the equity in your home. It's seen as a, a last ditch resort only in the case of emergency because we have such attachment to home ownership. And I will say that I have a, my dad's in his, his mid eighties and the proudest day, one of the proudest days of his life outside of his children and, and family was the day that he paid off his mortgage. He owns his home. How can we get to the point where we have a, a concerted plan to say, I don't want to own my home by the t- time I pass away. I should be able to use that cash to afford a healthy, happy lifestyle. So I think asset decumulation, if I had to say other than reti- increased penetration of retirement plans and benefits, asset decumulation is the other area we see immense interest in. And then the third area is around alternatives to long-term care. of Americans think that in-home care, these are home health aides and folks that come help with your daily activities of living, that's covered by Medicare. And it's as of today, it's not. 
and the average American is going to have a bill of $50,000 for in-home care. Now, this excludes those big outliers of degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and things where that home health bill can be millions of dollars. But in this case, most Americans are unprotected for this. And so we're very interested in, in products that protect Americans from the outlier healthcare expenses that can frankly bankrupt them. Interesting your views on technology. Many seniors are savvier and heavier users of technology today than some people may, may think. And what tools do you see in technology that seniors as consumers will be leveraging? I love this question, Joe. So when I was growing up, there was a cartoon show called The Jetsons. And The Jetsons was a futuristic show. And they had a robot who did everything, who was that frankly, she was the butler, the housekeeper, the nanny, all in one. You're nodding because I'm sure you recall. And I think that there's sometimes when people talk about age tech, they think that is the answer, that is the solution. To be honest, we're seeing very little traction on that kind of technology. VR hasn't taken off. That there's that really the technology is about enabling the human experience of healthcare, financial planning, human connection. It's really an enabler. And so it's pretty basic. 75% of older Americans use social media. They're the fastest growing group on Facebook. I think when I think technology, I think a lot more about how it's greasing the wheels of connecting people and giving them access outside the four walls of their home. And so that's really what technology is doing right now. We're invested in a business called Get Set Up, and Get Set Up is the largest peer-to-peer learning platform for older adults. You can take live small group classes of former teachers and other learned folks teaching others in your peer group classes. That's a perfect example of the ability of technology to reach people, to engage them in positive behaviors. The one caveat I would have on technology is really there just still is a very big income gap on this topic. And so when you think about health equity, one of the biggest challenges our healthcare system has is not that low-income seniors don't want the help. They can't reach them. If you don't have a phone, if you don't have cable to be able to have email, in today's day and age, you are left out of so much of, of all the benefits that could be eligible for you. So I think technology is an enabler of all the good things that are should, can and should be accessible. But it's also something that is limited right now to certainly middle and upper middle income Americans. I want to ask you about housing. Aging in place won't work for everyone. What new housing and senior living options do you see emerging? So this is a very interesting question, Joe. And I, I used to send me the questions ahead of time. So I had some time to think about it. And What is, I think, universally true of the senior living industry is they are starved and eager for innovation. They want to see new models of care for two reasons. One, congregate living or community living really is an amazing solution for socialization, for scaling care, for having ongoing care, preventative care. It is probably one of the only cost-effective ways ultimately, of this longevity and health span that we're facing right now. But the second thing going on is COVID gave congregate living a really bad PR campaign. And it really was unfortunate for the industry 
that they had such a crisis that was so unmanageable and obviously a shame for, it was, you know, and for all the families suffering from those that, that were byproduct, it was an awful, awful experience. But I think the intent is there for change and innovation. So that's kind of point one. I think the things that we're seeing is really how do you blend human service and technology-enabled service that allows folks to kind of have this continuum of care from the home into congregate care? How can you deliver that care more cost-effectively? Because right now, the average cost of senior living, I'm thinking assisted living or memory care, can range anywhere from $4,000 to $20,000 a month. And in America, the average is around $6,000 a month. The biggest challenge with senior living is it's incredibly expensive unless you're on Medicaid and then there's a nursing home that you may be eligible for. And so what are we seeing in the models of care? We're seeing more digital delivery of services within the walls of senior living as well as into the community, kind of a hybrid model where senior living is reaching into the community. But we're not really seeing a lot of alternative models of housing. It's still pretty much in the hands of senior living operators. You mentioned caregiving before. The needs for caregiving continue to increase. What new resources do you see being created in that space? Oh, this is there's so much going on in this space. In fact, it has its own new moniker called care tech, that it's literally become a thing over the past, I don't know, maybe four or five years. And again, accelerated by COVID because in this country, everyone became a caregiver. Whether you are helping aunt so-and-so figure out how to access her doctor on over Zoom to helping someone buy groceries online, we all started caring for those in our family through the pandemic. And so the types of things we're seeing is a couple of things. One, we're seeing employers get into the mix by offering family caregiving resources. And so there's a couple of businesses, probably five or six businesses that have started to offer, I'd say, care management, a person you can text with, call, resources, so that you as the family caregiver can navigate all of these decisions. I mean, these are decisions on healthcare, on financing, on housing on supplies and stuff to buy. I mean, there's a lot of decisions that you get put on the plate of the individual and the family caregiver. So we're really excited to see the employer come stepping up and into this mix of funding or subsidizing those types of care management resources. We're also seeing a few businesses recognize that it's more or less a profession to be a family caregiver. And, it, and for many, in fact, largely women, it forces them out of the workforce prematurely to take care of a loved one. And that is a huge issue on economic disparity in our country. And so we're invested in a business, for example, Adalie, that will help get compensation for family caregiving under a set of requirements, but it is provided for for certain populations, particularly low and middle income Americans, that they can get actual cash for their time working as a family caregiver. So I think the financial benefits, if you will, of being a family caregiver and the financial management of being a family caregiver. The average family caregiver spends $7,000 a year out of pocket on a loved one. And then I think the third piece that we find really interesting in this family caregiving piece, which is so critical, is family caregiving is incredibly deleterious to the family caregiver's health. The stress, the burdens, the physicality of it. And so there's starting to be more support groups, outreach from the health plans, respite, all of these things to really help the family caregiver manage their health because the average age of a family caregiver 
you're in your 50s or 60s taking care typically of a parent who's in their 80s or 90s, or you're a spouse in your 70s or 80s taking care of your loved one. So this is kind of a double whammy for the health of older Americans is that you basically have older Americans as family caregivers taking care of older Americans who are the ones in need. And so figuring out how you manage the health and mental well-being of the family caregivers is in, we're seeing the health plan starting to take that more seriously. So at the beginning of this episode, our listeners heard your bio, so they know the basics of your story. But I was wondering if you could tell us the story of your firm, Primetime Partners. Absolutely. So Primetime Partners is a venture capital firm. In spring of 2020, we launched. And how I got there was really because I, as an entrepreneur, was looking to solve this question of what exists in our country for older Americans in our 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 100s. What is happening from an infrastructure point of view? And where are where's entrepreneurship and innovation playing in that? That emanated from my own search to look for meaningful experiences and financial opportunities for my parents as they were aging. I'm very lucky. Most people in my space, most of the entrepreneurs I mentioned, come up with ideas because they have had a less than ideal experience with the American healthcare system and a loved one has been impacted. And so they want to fix it because of that. My experience is really trying to fix this white space because as I saw my parents aging, they're not one percenters, they don't play golf. It just begged the question of, well, what do you do? And Joe, you're unique. You're a, this is what you've dedicated your business to. There's this last, this next chapter of your business to helping people think about how do you find purpose and connectivity and worth and income and all of these things as you age. And so that's really the genesis for me of starting primetime was really around trying to solve this issue for my parents, recognizing that there are a lot of businesses to be built. And so instead of building one individual idea or concept into a business, I thought, well, maybe I would build an investment platform to fund dozens and hopefully hundreds of other entrepreneurs to solve or build things in this white space. And then I, my partner, Alan Patrickoff, he has been an investor for the past 50 years, starting a large private equity firm called Apex and then Graycroft, which is a multi-billion dollar venture firm. And he was also in, intrigued by this issue of how do we get older Americans starting businesses, people with expertise and wisdom and network and skills. And so we came together just to start the fund, as I mentioned, in spring of 2020. One last question, if I could. What advice would you have for people listening who want to stay up to speed on some of these innovations coming, things that they could use in their own lives? What would you recommend? How could they stay current on what's happening and what's coming? That's a great question. There's a lot going on. And I think ARP is still the best clearinghouse of information. And so I think their website, their magazine, their newsletters, I still believe that they are the preeminent media company in this space. And so I would recommend that. We have a newsletter. And so if someone's interested in our newsletter, you can email help at primetimepartners.com. And then there is a group of what we like of really podcasts that are out there on healthcare and an example like your podcast on retirement and financial longevity. And so I still think that the content is emerging. It's out there, but it kind of takes the onus on you. The other places that I think have great content, I mentioned MIT Media Lab, Stanford Center on Longevity does a really great job. And I know Joe, you're connected with them there. 
And then USC School of Gerontology. I think all of those places have really good information. But just to note for the listeners, I mean, this is an emerging category. As I said at the beginning, this is just everybody is learning. Everybody, this information is all new. And so staying up to date, but also contributing what you know and sharing is going to be really important because right now there's not as many people focused on this space that I'd like to be focused on this space. So I think part of it is talking about it with your friends. And one of the recommendations I would have is I've started this now at dinner parties or cocktail parties. I ask the question, how old do you think you're going to be? Like, how old do you want to be? My partner, Alan, says he's going to be 114. I think I'll probably be around 103. And so as a 48-year-old woman thinking about living to 103, how does that change your choices? How do you think about your context? And I'm just at the halfway point. And for those listeners that are 60, the oldest person alive now is 120. So maybe you're at the halfway point. And so I think a lot of how you stay up to date and informed is actually through your own process of thinking about and openly discussing the topics that as Americans, we don't, that are taboo. Talking about death, talking about old age. The more we talk about it, the more we can do with it. And so that would really be my call to action for the entire longevity economy is it starts with one person at a time, really being intentional about how they want to age and thinking long-term. Great advice. And Abby, thanks so much for sharing your insights and intel with us. Absolutely, Joe. Pleasure to be here. So let's compare notes on some takeaways that you can use following this conversation today. Here are two ideas for your consideration. Number one, what investments will you be making in these areas for yourself? And I'm not talking about financial investments, but what investments will you make in planning for things like longevity healthcare, aging in place, caregiving? A lot of great ideas in this conversation today. What's your plan and what steps might you need to be taking to be better prepared? Number two, stay in the loop. I think Abby had some great suggestions on a few resources where you can stay current on what's happening in terms of innovation in these spaces, some tools and resources that may develop that you can tap into. You'll find links to them in the show notes with a couple of others that I've added. And I think it's well worth just staying aware of what's happening and how that can enhance your life in the future. Thanks for listening to Retirement Wisdom Podcast. You can find all of our episodes across six seasons at our website, retirementwisdom.com. Our goal is to help you expand your thinking about life after you graduate from the world of full-time work. And you can find, again, great guests and interesting topics that cover the non-financial side of planning for retirement. Thanks for listening. 